Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Get noticed. Also, you never know where the breakthrough is going to come. Like, you may do better trying to get into a film company, or you may do better trying to be a stand-up or a copywriter for an advertising agency. Try everything you can that's in some kind of space where you want to be, because you never know where it's going to break through. Once you break through, then focus your efforts uh, unfailingly on your goal. All right. Uh, welcome back. I say welcome back. I don't know why I'm saying welcome back, but I feel like saying it because you are listening to another episode of Industry Standard. I hope you've come back uh, to listen, uh, and this is one of the ones you've come back to listen to. And if this is your first time listener, welcome. This is uh, a place for you to hang out, have fun, learn a little bit about life, learn a little bit about the business, get a few laughs, and uh, and trash me afterwards. That's how that's how it works here. Um, thank you again for everything. Uh, I'll keep saying thank you until uh, they put me away inside the piano box uh, uh, because uh, I just uh, I just feel like you guys are are uh, been unbelievable. The letters, uh, it, I just can't. It's incredible. I've gotten certain letters and emails recently of people who. Uh, you know, uh, started their own podcast because of listening to this. People who uh, got their dream job because they applied certain things that uh, certain guests talked about on how to get to the next level. Um, so it's you know it's it's really exciting, and uh, I never actually I take that back. I did dream of having it uh, work like this, and uh, you know, I remember those lotto commercials from so long ago in Massachusetts. All you need is a dollar and a dream. And thankfully, our producers are working for a dollar and I have a dream. So uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to indicate that I actually increased your salary by 100 uh, <laughs> percent. So uh, normally I like to start these podcasts off with a cold open that sort of um has a six degrees of separation to my guest today, which is Mark Cronin, one of the most successful reality producers of my or any generation. Uh, 
and he's done it his way. He is the Frank Sinatra of reality television producers, but with not as nice blue eyes as Frank. <laughs> anyway, so here is uh, my story. i known of Mark, you know, of doing a few things here and there. He was getting into the reality business, and we'll talk about what he did beforehand. Uh, he cut his teeth uh, around a guy who is one of the few guys in our business that we could consider a genius. Uh, who works in front of, behind, and around the mic and camera, and that was Howard Stern. And um, when you work with Howard, it's a fascinating thing because a lot of people think that the great people surround themselves with people who are the strongest people in the world. And, but there are certain artists, if you're an artist and you're building your team and you're an executive producer and you're an owner of what you do, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you surround yourself with people who are friends. Sometimes you surround yourself with people that would never, ever be able to get that job in any other capacity, but you believe in them. And through time in your show as you if they are people that hit the mic and don't hit the mic, you use them to make laughs, to make entertainment. And that's part of the drama and the conflict of whatever you do on television or radio when you're doing sort of a reality-based thing. And so my guest today was involved in that team, but he was one of the guys that wasn't one of those guys. Yet he was working with a bunch of guys, many of them still there, who probably still might not get a job in the business in that area. But because they work so well with Howard and they had such chemistry with Howard, um, it works. It's the same if you listen to, like, Jay Moore's radio show, Moore Sports, Jay Moore Sports on Fox Radio in the mornings. You'll find this eclectic group of people like the technical producer who he calls ghost hands because the guy just never seems to get a cue on time or anything of that nature. But who, you know, behind the scenes, once they get the things done the way he wants them to do, it's great. But it's the level of the up and down that that makes it so fascinating. And what always intrigued me about Mark Cronin was the fact that he was a part of this team in the madness of all these unique personalities, he was almost like the Jerry Seinfeld or the Judd Hirsch in Taxi. You know, he was the guy, he was there, he was like a rock, he was a normal, regular guy amongst madness and craziness. And and what he saw, in my humble opinion, as he was working, when he was working in this environment, he saw a reality show unfolding before his eyes with different characters, yet he was living it and working it, and it wasn't always recorded on television until a little bit later when he went to the Channel 9 show. But before that, it wasn't being recorded, and he was living it. And even when it was recorded, Channel 9 was the earliest, WWOR was the earliest versions of, of, of television. You really, you know... 
didn't really understand what was going on. It was, you know, Howard Stern and then one channel, you look at Robin Bird and a G-string interviewing Al Goldman and you're like, okay, this is Channel 9. And then you look at uh, Joe Franklin on a talk show in his 37th year being propped up by pillows. But the point I'm trying to make is that he saw something and I believe that that was the foundation for what he's doing today and what he's been doing in the past 10 years. But about 10 years ago, I was fortunate enough to catch Mark in the beginnings of his career. And uh, I loved his energy. He was so talent friendly. And uh, there was a guy I worked with who you might know, our audience might know, he has a great podcast. Uh, his name is Bert Kreischer. And I met Bert in New York. He'd come to New York from Florida, and he, there'd just been an article written about him in Rolling Stone magazine that he was the number one party animal in the country. And he'd come to New York to do comedy because he went up at one comedy show where there were professionals, had nothing planned, got a standing ovation, and literally blew them off the stage and thought, I can do comedy. And he showed up at the door of my comedy club, and like I always do sometimes without even thinking, I say, okay, you want to pass out some flyers, you want to do the door, you want to do whatever, I'll put you on. And he came in, and he went on stage, and he got a standing ovation, or a partial standing ovation on one of the shows. And it was unbelievable. It was like a stream of consciousness kind of comedy that the other comics really didn't understand what was going on. I don't think they necessarily respected him tremendously because his material wasn't like Chris Rock or somebody like that. But they did respect the fact that he was doing it. He was making it happen. And he was blowing these audiences away. And later on, believe it or not, I, you know, he'd only been on stage 50 times and I showcased him for David Tochterman who worked for Overbrook and Will Smith and, and James Lassiter. And David loved what he did. I put him on the Saturday night, the first Saturday night I ever put him on in front of an audience. He killed it. They made a deal for him. They paid him six figures. And within three months, I'm in rooms. I'm in network president's office with Will Smith and Burt Kreischer pitching a television show that was bought by Doug Herzog who when he was at Fox. And Burt was this guy that was just you you just it was infectious. And Mark saw this about Burt and we developed the television show a reality television concept that I believe the intention for um, Mark after uh, um, his successes was to get something going at FX, which was starting a new initiative, which was more, you know, doing a little more stuff outside the box, trying to figure out what they were doing. And the brilliant idea that uh, Bert uh, and Mark came up with, I think Bert came up with and sort of sold Mark on it. I don't know how he sold Mark on it because I don't know how anybody in the history of television could ever do a show like this again. It was called Hurt Bert. And the whole concept of the show was to put Bert Kreischer in situations that no other human being would be put in. 
and have him get the shit kicked out of him. That was basically the premise. So we went, you go in and pitch a show, literally, if you ever want to pitch a show successfully, have a pitch that you can pitch in one sentence, and chances are you might have a shot of turning that no into a yes. And Mark, with his relationship with FX, uh, they liked the idea, and they got a budget together, and we got an order, believe it or not, I think we only got an order for initially of three episodes. And which turned into interstitial stuff. And off Mark and his team went with Burt Kreischer to put him in these situations without any padding, without any protective gear. So where was Burt? You know, I think one of the first things I remember is Burt was on a football field playing quarterback against professional style and college style defensive players who were like 300 pounds. And their goal was to sandwich Bert and just crush him like a bug. And they succeeded. And every time Bert would get up and do it again until Mark or somebody on his team said, cut, we got what we need. Let's go to the next thing. And one of our biggest memories was the concept of Bert being a rodeo clown with real bulls, real rodeo, real danger. And um, it wasn't bad enough that Bert was probably concussed about seven times, and that's probably the reason why he is the way he is today. But he went and he did the rodeo clown thing, and of course what happened he wasn't trained properly and you know he was trampled and injured and had to take some time off but even after he was injured if i'm not mistaken there was still more to be shot and bert kreischer got up and he said we're going to finish this until we get what we want and he gave everything he had, even though he was really injured. I think he'd broken some ribs. I think he had, uh, you know, <laughs> bruises all over his head. I think he had to go to the hospital for. And something happened to his leg as well, where I think he twisted an ankle or did something. But he still kept going hurt until they got the shot, until Mark and his team got everything that they needed. And... The show was unbelievably hilarious. It was fantastic. It was, you couldn't stop watching it. But unfortunately, the network only decided to use it as interstitials and they didn't end up doing it as a television series. But I think the thing I took from it, and anybody who's listening can take a number of different things from this. You can talk about the stupidity of the stupidity of doing something as an artist that's so risky and so dangerous that you could lose your life. You could talk about the uh, bad judgment of producers to put and a manager to put an artist in that kind of situation, and you can think, okay, that's risky. That's a that's not a really great thing to do. But I think the thing is that you realize when you really believe in yourself as a producer and when you really believe in yourself as an artist, 
you're going to do everything you can for the common good as a team of that production to make sure that it's the best it possibly can be and that you're represented as the best representation of who you can be. And yes, it was dangerous and yes, it was risky, but it was one of those times where I had so much respect for Mark and his team. And I had so much respect for Bert to keep going and going and going until he got the shot. And it let me know that one of the qualities that if you're going to get anywhere as anybody in any business is you have to take risks. You have to do things that will create those holy shit moments. And if you feel in any profession you're in, especially as an actor, if you're making an audition tape or if you're doing anything and you don't feel like you have it right 100%, you need to keep doing it over and over again until you get it perfect. And that's the only time that anyone should ever see your work. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. There's something you worked on that was a, a show that was, uh, it was a crazy time. I believe it was in the late 90s where there were two African-American hosts that came on uh, late night television at Wait. the same time. I'm talking oh, about the show, oh, yes, the yes, show yes, Vibe yes. produced by Quincy Jones. Right. And Keenan Ivory Wayans. And Keenan Ivory Wayans show. <laughs> And um, Vibe was, they tabbed the unknown host, uh, Chris Spencer, who now is one of the writers and showrunners of The Real Husbands of Hollywood with Kevin Hart on BET. And they tapped Keenan Ivory Wayans. And I want you to talk about Keenan because it's, it's fascinating because that here is another guy that is another kind of genius. Yes. Uh, but... Instead of Howard being the huggable, lovable genius with the uh, lackadaisical kind of rules and regulations and how things work, Keenan Ivory Wayans was a guy, he was a pile driver. Yes. He was a guy that was a workaholic who demanded excellence from every level of production for all hours of the day and night even if he didn't necessarily spend all hours of the day and night working and might have spent time in his dressing room with certain people that might not have been part of the show <laughs> he demanded that from everybody and if you were a writer on the Keenan Ivory Wayans show you got there at 8 o'clock in the morning you stayed till I yeah. mean sometimes four, you weren't allowed to leave for food you weren't it, it was craziness well it's an interesting story that you bring up I don't talk about this very often because it ends the story for me ends badly with me getting fired but um, but you weren't the only one no I was not I was not the only head to roll but um, 
the way that came about was uh, Buena Vista Television was developing a talk show for John Sally. And they had, I remember it well. And they had done a pilot. And, and a, he did a great job, John Sally. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal pilot. pilot. He was a great talk show host. And they were about to pick him up. Yes. And they and I had gone to several meetings with them talking. This is while I was doing Big Deal. I had done several meetings with them about being the showrunner for the John Sally talk show. And for those you don't know, John Sally is a four-time NBA champion who also was a guy who tried stand-up and was always funny and always unique, but literally had been in some movies like Bad Boys and things like that. And always funny, always unique, but seven feet tall and uh, a huge presence. And this pilot, again, I believe they had told him that it was picked up. I believe they told him at Buena Vista that he was going yes. forward because it tested so wonderfully and he was so great. Yes, so I was sure it was going forward. He was sure, and I was sure I had the job. And in fact, one of the reasons I had the job was because they asked me for a reference. And I said, well, there's Howard Stern and Susie Pulse at that time, uh, was her name at that time, uh, was blown away when Howard Stern called her up at her home and said, you know, you got to hire Cronin. He's the best. And so basically Howard kind of got me that job with Re that phone call. Relationships, yes. everybody. <laughs> uh, so they were going to hire me to be the showrunner of John Sally. But then all of a sudden, Keenan Ivory Wayans appeared willing now to do a, a late night talk show. And the minute he stepped into the ring to do a late night talk show, uh, Buena Vista threw all their energy into his project, basically shelving or killing the John Sally project and decided to throw in with um, Keenan. And uh, Michael Davies, who was at uh, Buena Vista at that time. Uh, an incredible uh, reality producer and yes, executive as well. Enormous respect for uh, Michael Davies. And he... Uh, uh, had, was kind of shepherding the John's the uh, the Keenan Ivory Wayans project, and teamed uh, Keenan with a British production company uh, headed by Charlie Parsons, who created Survivor, believe it or not. Um, and he brought in this British production company because they were doing a show in England called The Big Breakfast that uh, Michael was a fan of. It was a very loose, fun, audience participation, big talk show in the morning in, in England. It was a number one morning show in England. And these, this production company, he paired them with Keenan Ivory Wayans to go and produce this show. And they felt bad for me, which doesn't happen often in Hollywood, but they felt bad for me having been this close to being the showrunner of the John Sally show that kind of as a, uh, uh, I don't know, a salve for the wound. Uh, Michael called and said, would you like to come on board this project? You can't be the showrunner. I already have another company doing that, but you can come on and be the supervising producer of comedy for the show, which I just thought was fantastic. Like, you know, great. I can be the supervising producer of comedy for Keenan Ivory Wayans. The problem for me was that Keenan really didn't know the English production company and he didn't know me at all and the and other problem was <laughs> he knew that you were aligned with john sally and he knew that you were a part of that project and now you're being laid off on, on this project him. right and no artist wants to know right. that you were part of the enemy even if you won and beat the enemy yeah they don't want to know that i stepped into a bad political situation no question about it there was another problem though at that show and it has to do with keenan's perfectionism that you spoke about Keenan was doing was one of the most successful sketch, you know, uh, in living color was probably one of the most groundbreaking, phenomenal, beautifully written, beautifully performed, beautifully produced uh, sketch shows of all time. 
And Keenan was the man behind that show. He was the vision of what that show was. And that show was perfect because Keenan made it perfect. But he made it perfect on a weekly basis. He would have to do a half hour of weekly television. And for that half hour, he could edit everything to perfection. He could perfect the scripts. He could rehearse the performances. When you go into late night comedy, and now all of a sudden you've got to do an hour of television a night, instead of a half an hour a week, you've got to, unfortunately, you have to loosen up a little bit your standards. It has to kind of be, well, that's good enough. Let's get that on the air because we got another show to do tomorrow. And the problem I ran into, and I think that that show ran into, was the the perfectionist mentality met the uh, imperfection of disposable nightly television. And it was incompatible with what Keenan wanted to do. His, his vision for how good a sketch should be or a film that we're doing or commercial parody was beautiful. He's an artist and they were all fantastic. It's just that we ran out of all the films we made for the, uh, you know, we had probably eight weeks of preparation for the premiere night. And by the, by the time the show premiered, we probably had 10 commercial parodies in, in the bank and we were not going to make it past the second week uh, with those things and very quickly ran out. So it's, it's, it was unfortunately his, the, his style of work didn't match the style necessary for late for a daily show, but still a genius, but a genius that uh, went the other way. Yeah. Well, listen, he still makes great movies and, you know, I hear rumblings every once in a while that they may bring in living color back again. And I just have enormous respect for, for Keenan always will. Uh, even though I, I got fired on that project, uh, it was, uh, it, I learned a lot. We've all, well, <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, we've all been fired by people we respect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, Michael Davies fired me. Oh. He, he <laughs> called me in and he told me, he said, Mo, it's not going to work out. Uh, <laughs> and he said, um, "Listen, someday though, uh, we're both going to be in the retirement home, the you know the entertainment retirement home, and I'm going to need somebody to wheel me into the sunlight on the porch. And uh, I hope I can count on you for that." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Well, you're right about Keenan Wayans. He is a genius in everything that I've ever seen him work on. It's just, it's amazing. I mean, and that's, I, 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 that's the part of the, his personality and how he is. A, it's just, just incredible. Every movie he does is, it seems to be incredibly successful, you know, and living color was one of the greatest shows ever. So I agree with that. And I, I think that's a great assessment about the late night thing. It just, that kind of thing can get the best of you. And so let's move to the next thing that happened with you. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you had the goal of thinking, okay, The View is doing really, really well. How do I take something like The View and take my pen roots <laughs> of how I had the all-male sketch group uh -huh. and channel this into a male-dominated talk show? Every day. Yeah. Well, you, you give me uh, more credit than I deserve for the initial notion. The initial notion was Peter Liguori, who was the head of FX in those days, uh, wanted to do, at those at that time, Maxim Magazine, uh, FXM, Stuff Magazine were big. And Guy, humor, you know, uh, Guy, you know, I don't know, even the man show at this time was was bubbling up. Um, there was this this thought that 
you know, men are interested in doing better in life or want information on how to dress and these kinds of things. And the magazines were kind of the inspiration for that. And we had a meeting with Peter and he said he had on his coffee table, Maxim and FHM. And he said, I want that on TV. And he did it to several producers. He said, go out, think of what that means. What does Maxim magazine or stuff magazine on TV mean? And come back and pitch things to me. And so Gary and I were part of that kind of derby to pitch Peter Ligori the right idea for that. And so we pitched this show with four male hosts called The X Show, meant to be a segmented nightly show. Uh, We had such comments, we would say things like, well, guys want to know what to wear, but they don't want to look at male models on TV. So let's put all the guy clothing on female models. So we'll do guys, you know, girls in guys suits, girls in guys underpants, girls in guys. And so we would, uh, that was kind of a nice little twist. And then we had the idea that we do a weekly beauty pageant and we would do sports picks on Friday and pay them off on Monday. And we would, we just had a lot of great energy and ideas in our pitch to him for that show. And uh, we, I guess we won that derby and we made the pilot and got picked up. And that show uh, ran two years and we did 400 episodes of it. And um, it was one of the most enjoyable uh, jobs of my life. Like I loved producing that show every day. Every day we'd reinvent the show. Every day we'd make the show at 11 in the morning and then uh, put it on the satellite that night. Um, I just had so much fun. I loved the whole process of it. It was an enormous amount of work, but uh, really loved producing that show. And again, not to be the dead horse of relationships, but one of your hosts for that show was? Bert Kreischer. That is correct. <laughs> Bert Kreischer. That's, that's how uh, Bert and I got together is he came on. And that's actually where Hurt Bert came from. Uh, as a host of the X show, we did a segment where he went to an esthetician, <laughs> a, a wax, a place that waxes the hair off your body, and uh, he actually had his butt waxed. One uh, of the one, <laughs> one of the funniest segments that I've ever seen to this day and yeah. will ever see in my life is Bert Kreischer holding his package <laughs> while this woman waxed his butt, and every rip of that wax played on Bert's face. In such an amazing way. That's the thing about Bert is that his emotions go right out. He has no filter whatsoever in his body. It just and he and he had a, a tremendous respect for women after that. <laughs> tremendous respect for women. Um, I I think it's just a it was just a hilarious segment. But so. it was that tape of him screaming in pain as somebody ripped hair out of his butt. Uh, that led to us saying, "Wow, what if we just did found some way to every week." <laughs> Hurt, hurt this guy. <laughs> That's right. So tell me some of the next things that happened. You did uh, three seasons of a show called Beat the Geeks on yeah. Comedy Central. Very proud of that show. That was right after the X show. Um, we were just coming out of the overall deal, and Gary and I kind of split up. Gary Auerbach and I, our partnership split up. He wanted to go a scripted route, and I was perfectly happy with these talk shows and game shows. And so... Um, I, I sold on a pitch this idea that was uh, James Rowley and I, uh, a guy who worked for me at that time, had this idea of beat the geeks. And um, it would be that there'd be four experts, super experts beyond anything you could be as an expert on movies, TV, music, and then a guest geek every week. And we went in and we pitched that to Comedy Central and they bought it. And I'm very proud of that show. Always loved it. I thought it was a a lot of fun. And I think it could be on, it would be on the air today. 
because people are loving, you know, uh, the nerdist and geek chic and and super fans of all types. Um, it's owned by Fox Television Studios, so I don't know if they'll ever resurrect it. You're if they have, do, I hope they come look have for to, me to gonna have to repackage it. it. Yeah, there's so many things here to talk about, but let's let's get into one of the mother loads of your life and career, the surreal life. Yeah. That was the thing in my mind that, you know, even though you did 400 episodes of the X show and beat the geeks and all these things for three seasons, two seasons, you know, no matter what you think out in the world of this television business, even though you would think that two or three seasons or 400 episodes would be an enormous success and talk or whatever, as a producer, you still sit on the couch in the fetal position <laughs> saying to yourself, fucking Mark Burnett, Jesus Christ, right, right? 15 seasons of survival, American Idol, fucking all these, why can't I get something that goes at least five years? What's the matter? <laughs> I need my thing that's going to get me to where I want to go. Because once you get one of those things, yeah, get a helmet because things are going to happen to you. And that thing for you was surreal life. Yes. And it wasn't just longevity. It was for me, there was a matter, a, a measure of have I impacted pop culture or not? And I would say on the Howard Stern show, I had a hand anyway. Howard, of course, was the leading edge of that. But I was part of something that impacted pop culture. I believe singled out was something that, you know, moved the needle a little bit and made a dent both with its hosts and also its the show was lasted and was fun. But it wasn't your show. No, I did not create it. Right. And uh, but the other things hadn't really moved the needle, even beat the geeks as much as I adore it. It wasn't like a huge monster hit. Um, and so you're right. I definitely was still in, in search of that thing that I could create that would move the needle and impact the world. And uh, was fortunate enough that the surreal life is one of those that kind of struck a nerve and and broke through. Um, the the genesis of that show uh, was that uh, UTA I was represented by Chris Colon at that time. He's mm -hmm. now a producer. Um, he put me together with another producing team, Chris Abrego and Rick Teas, just to have a breakfast. And he said, "Why don't you three get together? Because you're, you know, these young guys, Chris and Chris and Rick." Uh, are young whippersnappers and you're, you know, semi-established and maybe the three of you can be a more powerful swing. So the three of us got together for a breakfast and <clears throat> kind of came up with the idea of doing a reality sitcom. Like, could we take X sitcom stars and make a family out of them and, but do it as a reality show where they're actually just living together. And there was a, in those days, there was a stovetop stuffing commercial where George Hamilton is living with Charo and Mr. T is their son. And it was some ridiculous commercial that was, what if celebrities were in a family together? And this is what's so <laughs> fucked up about our world in Hollywood. George Hamilton, when in this town, you can be famous for having a tan. <laughs> that's, that's George Hamilton. Anyway, keep yeah. going. I'm sorry. But so the idea was to make a family of pop culture icons. And we actually thought it would be a family of ex-sitcom people. That turned out to be impossible to to cast, but we, you know, so we opened it up a bit. But anyway, so we went in and we pitched several places and um, uh, we went into the WB and uh, Keith Cox, uh, who now who runs... Who is now a TV land. Yeah. Uh, he bought the show and uh, took it to his boss, Jordan Levin. Uh, and this was at the WB. 
uh, a network that no longer exists. And they were not a network that was known for reality television, although they had the Jamie Kennedy experiment in those days was one of their, and they had high school reunion, but they weren't big in reality and mostly because they didn't want to be. Uh, Jordan Levin's philosophy was that reality television is ratings crack, that you'll get a popular hit uh, of ratings, but it doesn't stick, that the audience doesn't know the characters the next season and won't come back. Uh, he preferred, he much strongly preferred scripted content where when the network is investing in Everwood and Gilmore Girls and Smallville, that that can run season after season and you know the characters and you come back for them season after season, whereas something like a reality show that has to kind of rotate its cast uh, is kind of a waste of effort um, on the part of the network. I think he was wrong. Ultimately, we kind of proved that, that you can have a reality show that's brand is big enough to bring the audience back, no matter if the cast changes or not. The bachelor works every season and there's nobody on the bachelor that was there from last season. And you still come back because it's the bachelor. Um, so clearly I think that that thinking was misguided, but he was a genius in that he bought The Surreal Life and put it on his air and and got that ratings crack hit, and we got uh, big numbers for the WB in those days. Now, your first cast was, uh, can you remember them all? Yeah, well, we, we started with, and this is part of the relationships thing, we started with, believe it or not, the first one cast was Corey Feldman, because he had been on the X show as a guest, and he and I, you know, he had also been kind of on the Howard Stern show, he had appeared on the Channel 9 show, so he and I kind of knew each other and had kind of a, a respect for each other. And so I started with him and it wasn't easy. Uh, this, the pitch for doing this real life was not an easy pitch. Uh, people sometimes say, oh, those has-beens, what else have they got to do? You know, they, they might as well do this in real life. Well, the truth is nobody thinks that way. Nobody thinks that way. Everybody thinks they're one script away from the next big movie. Everybody's, you know, still thinks they're about to get tapped on the shoulder to be the, the next big thing on a sitcom. Well, and, you know, look at Mayim Bialik. I mean, it's like she, I mean was brought onto the Big Bang Theory and there she, she is. hadn't worked in, I think, over 10 or 15 years. Chevy Chase community, he hadn't worked in 14 years. But the fact is, if you have something, if you have something, a semblance of anything, yeah. there's always a chance that you're going to get another shot. And the wisdom in those days was if you had any thought that you were going to do movies or television in the scripted space... If you touch reality television, you're dead. They will never hire you ever again in any kind of scripted capacity. That's what they thought. That's what almost every celebrity thought. So when you pitch it to them and you say, you're going to do a reality show and we're going to watch you brush your teeth and you're going to, you know, we're going to in the morning wake up while you scratch your butt on the way to the bathroom. It's like they just looked at that like, oh, my God, it really is over for me if you're going to do that to me. And so it's not an easy pitch. And um, And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the money you were paying was like not spectacular. No. My my trick for it And it was Favored Nations was <laughs> for those of you who don't know what Favored Nations is, that means that the deals when you're doing a show like this, they all have to be exactly the same. The language has to be exactly the same in the contract, except for the name of the person, their social security number, federal ID number and their address. And the money and the terms need to be the same. And there are times, just so you know out there, when somebody's doing a show where everybody's agreed to favor nations and there's somebody you really want and they won't agree to it. And there are ways of getting around it. The contract still has to be the same, but then maybe you can make some side letter a development that, says, deal or that something. says here's a development deal where yeah. you get $50,000 or here's... 
you're a script consultant and you're got You're exposing that. all the tricks on this show, aren't you? Well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Barry. <laughs> favorite nations means favorite nations. <laughs> That's right. Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> uh, well, so anyway, uh, the idea that these people would put themselves in a reality situation was uh, quite extraordinary. My trick for paying them, though, Barry, was that uh, I came up with the idea that we could do the entire six episodes that the WB had ordered in 12 days. And so what I said to the celebrities was, it's two weeks of work. It's just two weeks. And I'm going to pay you really well for two weeks of work, uh, which I believe I did. I paid them quite well if you look at it as a weekly number. Uh, Are you allowed to say what number that was? Oh, I can't remember. I probably at that, at that time it was probably I thought it was between tw- I thought it was 25,000 or something. Like that. I think maybe it was 35, something like that. So it's $35,000 for two weeks of work. So you're getting 17 a week. And uh, that's great. Who else is making $17,000 a week? Unfortunately, you're only making about 5000 an episode. Well, that's the thing. If you divide it by the number of episodes, it's not very good pay at all. But I needed eight celebrities. So who were, added, your, so who were your eight besides So Corey we started Feldman. with Corey Feldman. We added MC Hammer, which mm-hmm. was actually not an easy pitch either. He was very suspicious of the project and thought it might be a hatchet job of some sort. And... Um, uh, I'm proud to say that this real life is not a hatchet job show. It's a it's a very honest show and very good natured. And the I think the real thing about this real life is is when people come together, will they gel into a family or not? And let's watch the process of roommates gelling into a family or not. That's basically what it is. It's a social experiment. Anyway, so Corey Feldman, MC Hammer, Vince Neil from Motley Crue. Uh, and you can see here, I'm going to musicians because they were a little easier to talk to about this. They weren't as hung up on "I'll never work in scripted again." They're and and a musician in the music world, when you're a you're not a has been, you're a classic. You're an inspiration to the musicians of today. They don't look at the people the the people who made hit records in the '60s as over. They look at them as their great inspirations. So. Vince Neil and MC Hammer didn't feel, didn't believe that they were has-beens of any kind. They were fine with it. They were like, I've made a huge hit. You know, I made an impact on pop culture and I've inspired, you know, music that goes forward to this day. So the musicians aren't hung up the same way that uh, script uh, actors are. Actors are much more hung up on am I relevant or not uh, at the moment. Um, anyway, so we got those three. And then there was uh, Gabrielle Carteras from Beverly Hills 90210. We had, oh God, if I'm leaving somebody out, they're going to be mad at me. Jerry Manthe from Survivor. We put a reality person into another reality show on the theory that they were now a celebrity. Um, uh, Oh, Emmanuel Lewis was a nice uh, booking, and uh, he turned out to be great friends with MC Hammer. It was a lot of fun to watch those two together. Um, I think, I don't know, I probably forget. Any other women on the show? Brandy Brandy Roderick uh, was on that first season. She was a former Playmate of the Year. I'd had success with those before, so I... Try it again. I'm sure you have. <laughs> no, professionally. Oh, professionally. Sorry. Um, and so that was a hit. And then, but then something. But then, what happened next? Well, we did a couple seasons on the WB, but the WB again stuck with that philosophy that it was ratings crack, and they actually canceled us in the second season after the second season. One of the few times a show is canceled when it's doing well. Yes, I thought so. It seemed crazy to me, but they they canceled it, and then they did something even better for us than canceling us. <laughs> I'm so grateful to them for canceling me and then letting me have it. They basically said, via con Dios, 
it's, you know, we're not going to hold up the ownership of it or require you to keep it off the air for years. They didn't do that thing that a lot of people do in Hollywood where you protect yourself against a bad decision and force the project into death so that you don't very, look stupid. Very common that people just protect themselves and they just don't let you have it back. Right. And they just let us have it. I guess maybe believing like how, what are you going to do with that? You know, Cronin, good luck with that canceled, you know, show, trashy show. But uh, Brian Graydon at uh, at VH1, who was in charge of VH1 and MTV, made one of the gutsiest moves, I believe, ever in picking up a canceled show from a network that wasn't like a national phenomenon at that time. It wasn't like he was it was a no brainer. It was a risk. He he picked up the show and he... But what Brian knew and the kind of executive that Brian is, he knew that if he picked up the show and gave you life, that he would be able to have a little more than just an outside view of a show coming in. He knew that if he gave you the lifeline to pick it up, that he could be a huge part of the casting of the show with you and he could be involved with you in the decision making. And and that was, in my mind, one of the reasons why, because you, when you pick up a canceled show and somebody says, hey, listen, you executives, you stay over there. I'm coming in and doing my thing. You never would have had the show picked up. But he knew if he could get the right kind of casting for his network, which a lot of the people that you had were right for his network, and he knew he could work with you and he knew you'd work with him because yeah. of your relationships in the past, then that that first season on VH1, what was the cast there? Uh, that was the year, that was Flavor Flav and Bridget Nielsen and Dave Coulier and Charo and um, I want to say that that was also uh, Vern Troyer and uh, Christopher Knight. No, that was that was the second season on VH1. They start blurring together in my... That's okay. brain. But that was a big first year because Flava Flav and Bridget oh, Nielsen yeah. and uh Yeah. And so <laughs> So what I want to ask you this, this is one of the weird questions that I've ever asked on the podcast, is like everybody knows when you do television that actors and actresses, you know, hook up. You know, it 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 you know, it happens. It's happened throughout the beginnings of time. But you're on this reality show and, you know, it, it, when you're on a scripted show and actors and actresses hook up, it's bad news. And the reason why it's bad news is that if it goes astray and those actors and actresses aren't getting along, you have table reads, you have things together, you, the whole chemistry of the show is fucked up because America can't see that. All America sees is what's on the screen that you're writing and you put on, and then everybody suffers on the set from a relationship that's gone bad. On reality television, you get down on your knees and pray <laughs> to Allah that people hook up and get in arguments because the conflicts on reality shows are what make reality shows juggernauts. Right. That's so right. when did you first know or feel that Flava Flav and Bridget Nielsen were going to hook up? It That was the first day they met. I mean, the first moment they met, they were gravitated to each other like a north and south magnet. I mean, they just like stuck on each other and they were both crazy in the same way. And they were both fans of each other from afar. You know, he had been a big fan of her movies and she was a fan of public enemy and they were just meant for each other. And were in they some in strange way when they met? Well, yes. I, well, 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Flav's always got a relationship, and Bridget had a guy back in Italy, and uh, uh, but you know, listen, you're on set. It's a very erotic situation, I guess. It's <laughs> um, so they're in a house together, yet all of a sudden they start. Yeah. Yeah, they they for real. I mean, they they went at it. Yeah, um, it was amazing. It was a beautiful thing to see. It was it's a, it's kind of a tribute to Flav's. Uh, Flav is so charming, and he can just talk his way. And when he talks to somebody, you're it, the only person in the room. It makes me feel good that I could actually have a shot with women with teeth that are actually not all capped. I feel like I might. There's hope for me. Okay, and I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, so, so you just, so, so it's, it just works out and the ratings go through the roof. Yeah. It, it, well, what happened was, and it was obviously, I feel a brilliant move of Brian Graydon. He had a, a channel he was trying to turn into a pop culture channel, something that celebrates pop culture past and present. And they were doing, I love the eighties and I love the nineties and that kind of thing. And so there was surreal life coming in as their first live action reality show was kind of a living, breathing. I love the eighties show it was all of a sudden you've got mc hammer living with uh emmanuel lewis and you're you know it's crazy and so uh uh the, he saw the beauty of how it was a tribute to the past yet it was making something new and he saw also early on he saw that it was a crucible a a, a petri dish for talent that you could find people to come back and pop off the screen in that show maybe there'd be something else to do with them well and, this is what's miraculous about you Normally, people pray to have one spinoff in their life. <laughs> you had four. I would say that the tree of life that comes from the surreal life is quite extensive. Next was Strange Love, which right. was uh, Flav and Bridget and their adventures in Italy, New York, and Vegas. My Fair Brady was a spinoff of the surreal life. Uh, Flavor of Love was a spinoff of Strange Love, which was a spinoff of the surreal life. Rock of Love was a obviously an inspiration or spinoff of flavor of love. Uh, I love New York was a, she was a character on this on flavor of love and had two seasons of her own show. Two contestants from her show, real and chance ended up with two seasons of their own dating show, real chance of love. Daisy Delahoya, who was a contestant on rock of love spun off into her own show, uh, Daisy of love. Um, Megan Hauserman, who was a contestant on Rock of Love, had her own show, Megan Wants a Millionaire. Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't know if I got them all, but you there's a lot so of You have so many spinoffs. You have yeah. spinoff waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were churning. Like, we would put a, a character. What we'd do is the network would always sit behind us in the control room. You're in a garage, usually. We'd take somebody's mansion, and we move them out. Sometimes we pay for them to go somewhere, almost like Extreme Home Makeover, <laughs> except we, we're going to cut their house into Swiss cheese, quite frankly. But we don't tell them that. So the people, we move out the family of the from their house and we install our show we put lights in the ceiling and surveillance cameras in the corners and uh change their pillows and furniture to be tv friendly uh change all their art to be stuff that we've cleared and and we move into their garage and we put in i don't know a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment into the garage of tv screens and cameras and tape machines and uh audio equipment and surveillance mics and uh, robotic cameras and everything it's all controlled from this garage and we all sit in there while the 
cast is in the main house in the mansion. We're all packed in, usually about 20 of us, into a little garage uh, watching what's going on on the TV screens. Um, and the way it usually works is the front line right closest to the screens, those are the director and the audio, head audio guy and mostly technical people running kind of the cameras and the, and the show. Right behind them sit the producers, which would be like me and other producers who might be producing a segment that day or whatever. We have a table behind the front row. And then the back row is usually a line of director's chairs and that's where the network comes and goes. They'll come in and sit in the back and kind of watch what's happening in kibitz. And the way we ended up with the Surreal, uh, Surreal Life, then Flavor of Love, then Rock of Love and all these spinoffs, the VH1 executives would sit behind us watching possibly the first episode as the cast is coming together and meeting each other and, and we're seeing who's funny and who's popping and, and we would literally turn around, Chris Abrego and I, we might turn around and say to the network behind us, see her? That's a show. And they'd go, yes, she is. And then we'd start moving towards, you know, building our show to make sure that she came off in a way that we could then spin off a show for her. That's how New York and things like that went. Now, we're going to head into the final roundup here. But one of the things that in 2008, when End the Mall bought 51% of 50... <laughs> 51 Minds. 51 Minds, <laughs> which is your company from Mindless Entertainment. This is one of the things that always fascinates me, and um, and there are certain situations you wonder how people perform under these circumstances. Like, if you're a baseball fan, and you're Yasiel Puig, and you were a Cuban refugee who literally tried to escape your country five different times to get over here and then we're taken by a drug cartel and moved to Mexico who threatens you all through your career or whatever and you finally get your $42 million or whatever is that big chunk of change you wonder yourself how is that how's that person going to perform after they got that guaranteed contract and it's common knowledge and well documented although I'll let people look it up rather than me saying it on the air and embarrassing you but in 2008 you know, no matter how many shows you had on the air and how many executive producer fees you had and whatever it was, you know that no matter how successful you are, you're still thinking to yourself, why is it that we don't have more money here? <laughs> why is it that we're doing all these things and I don't feel like we're like have like the kind of real cushion that we should really have? And in 2008, you got like the mother load deal from end them all where you got paid more money than anybody in the world could ever imagine of probably making or most people. The truth is it is strangely demotivating that you get this enormous check and you're like, Oh, this is awesome. What I could like, how much fun can I have in my vacation house? And I can travel and I can, but the truth is that's not the case. They, you know, everybody wants you to keep going. And when a, when a big company buys a little company, they're making a little bet. They're saying to the little company, you can go on and be a little company yourself. And over the next six years, you might make X amount of dollars. We're going to come in and pay you that X amount of dollars right now. And we're then going to collect the money that you're going to make over the next six years. And the bet they're making or the bet that you're making when you sell the company to this big company is that they're paying you more than you would have made yourself anyway. And so somebody's going to lose that bet. Either the company is going to pay more money for your company than you'll make back for them or they're going to make less 
than than uh, than what you would you're going to make less than what you would have made without them, and so we made that bet. We they they paid for six years of our profits, and paid for them up front, kind of. And uh, it's it's a very strange feeling because now you're all of a sudden you've been you've been an entrepreneur all this time. You've built your companies and you've eaten what you killed. You you made a hit show and you got paid for it. Now your job is to earn back the money that they've paid you. You've already been paid, and now your job is to keep working as hard as you can so that they make money on your on the purchase. And it's like almost like they're relying on your goodwill or your moral stature that you don't want to just freeload off and take their money and run. Like you need to keep churning out money for them so that they can make back the money they gave you. And it's a very weird feeling. It's a, it, it's, I know it's nobody's going to be very sympathetic with it. <laughs> so, if there was a, so if there was a true serum in your veins right now. Apparently there is. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that. Just yes. Or no questions or whatever. Do you feel like they lost the bet? Yes or no? Well, they did lose the bet, but they didn't lose the bet because we didn't try hard to make hit television shows and pay them back. Uh, sadly, they bet on our company, and a couple years after they bought us, there was a horrible tragedy. Uh, one of our contestants from um, Megan Once a Millionaire, who then went on to another one of our spinoffs, I Love Money, came back from that show that was shot in Mexico and was out of our hands now. He was done the two shows, but he went home and killed his wife. And uh, it was a famous case here a few years ago. He murdered his wife that he had married in Vegas between the shows. And then he, uh, you know, horribly mutilated her body and put her in a dumpster and went on an international manhunt for him and uh, eventually hung himself in Canada. But that incident where a reality contestant had committed a murder uh, was a major, major, it was the iceberg hitting the Titanic. It was bad for everybody who produces reality television. And our company was associated with this guy. Now, not that we had anything to do with what he did in his time, spare time. And that's the problem a little bit with reality television. In fact, any television is, is that these are real people and they, uh, you know, they go on to do unpredictable things, but because he had managed to get through onto our show and then went and committed this horrible crime, uh, VH1 suddenly kind of woke up to the bad publicity and thought, oh, my God, our reputation is in the toilet. We're the we're the channel with the killers on the air. And how did this happen? Why are we doing this trashy television like this? We should clean up our act. And so they stopped buying VH1 pretty much didn't completely stop buying. They have started paying a lot less for shows that they did buy from us. And they were actively trying not to buy shows from us because they felt like we were bad news and our profits plummeted. I mean, really plummeted. We were a very successful engine of profits until that incident. And then we went through some very lean years and that flipped the deal for Endemol where they had paid up front for a company that had kind of, self-destructed they went through lean years you well yes you exactly right i years. had already been paid for the profits that i'm now not making um and that's so they did lose that bet uh to answer your question okay so now to my truth serum your truth serum <laughs> so chris abrego stays he takes a job as a co-president of uh and the mall usa um and you go off and you start your own production company. 
Little Wooden Boat Productions. Yes. How do you come up with that name? <laughs> I'm trying to be intimidating. <laughs> um, I have a little. When I think of boat. little, when I think of little wooden boat, I just think all I think about is the tidy bowl commercial. <laughs> the That's not what I was going for. I uh, I have a little wooden boat. I have a um, a twelve foot. <laughs> she's majestic. Uh, beetle cat. It's called. It's a little single sail sailboat made of cedar wood and pine, and uh, she lives on Martha's Vineyard. And she's my baby, my pride and joy little boat. And uh, it's where I want to be when I'm not working is on my little wooden boat. And now that it's probably the last company I'll ever create, uh, I just wanted to name it after something I loved. So, you know, you can afford a bigger boat than 12 feet. <laughs> you know that, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm scared of a bigger boat, though. Just check. <laughs> All right. I want to ask you, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to mention some people, some things, whatever. I just want you to We're tell free me, associating. I just want you to tell me one thing that pops to mind, the story, some uh -oh. holy shit moment okay. that nobody knows about. Oh, dear. That will blow our audience away or something that means something to you. Okay. All right. Flava Flav. Uh, sweet, charming man. Really a sweet, charming man. That's the surprising thing about him. And uh, everything he did for us was real. His, his engagement with the women, the way he felt about them, uh, for him in the moment was always a very real thing. Bridget Nielsen. Bridget Nielsen was uh, uh, bamboozled us. Uh, we didn't know that she had a live-in boyfriend when we started her show Strange Love with Flavor Flav. We all arrived in Milan with the production company in tow, and we showed up at her door to start filming, and it turns out she had a live-in boyfriend when the entire concept of the show was that Flavor Flav was coming to start a relationship with her. And we were shocked and we thought we were doomed because she had lied to us that she was single and here she was not single and what are we going to do and we just decided to throw Flav in we threw him in the door and he tackled her and hugged her on the ground in front of her boyfriend and it turns out the boyfriend was a bit of a wimp I guess and uh, they it, Flav took her away we took them off to Lake Como together and started that romance which was a very real romance extreme dodgeball uh, we tried to create a real sport. We really thought we had a sport. <laughs> Just like we thought basketball, like we really thought dodgeball, dodgeball was kind of an underground sport. People were playing it, uh, in community centers, adults. I mean, not just kids in schools and adults were playing dodgeball and we tried to create real rules for a real sport. Uh, we had comedy announcers, but we, we were really trying to create something there that would create a league unsuccessfully, apparently. <laughs> Gary Delabate at Howard Stern, Baba Booey. Uh, I love that guy. That guy has a memory like a steel trap. He is one of the most engaging people to talk to, especially if you're a fan of the Howard Stern show. To sit down with that man and hear his stories of things that have happened in that studio is just, he could talk for hours and keep you entertained. He's an amazing uh, font of stories of that show. Howard Stern's New Year's Rotten Eve uh, was I didn't realize it, but uh, when I came, I moved to L.A. right after that show and I tr got a lot of meetings with people, but nobody would hire me because of that show. And they said, that's the show where you had a woman eat maggots. And, you know, we had a lot of crazy stuff on that 
on that special. I mean, we had one girl's talent was that she masturbated on the set, on the stage, in front of everybody. That was her talent. In the ta- I thought would have thought that would have been the most horrible thing to happen. But no, apparently the girl came out and they ate maggots. What if she ate maggots and masturbated? It, right. No, that's the only way it would have been worse. But it turns out, years later, they came out with Fear Factor, and eating maggots is nothing. That's nothing. But anyway, I was, I was almost persona non grata for having produced a show with a, a woman eating maggots. <laughs> <laughs> Keenan Wayans. Uh, genius. We've talked about him at length. I have enormous respect for A him. A story that nobody knows. A, oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, could it be the... Oh, God, I can't, I can't tell that one story. I'm sorry. I can, let me think of another one. <laughs> Why can't you tell that story? I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's illegal. Start the, drinking the, the vodka. It's illegal behavior. There may have been illegal behavior. I don't know. <laughs> I love the guy, and uh, the way he ran his writers' room was amazing. He would uh, he had index cards up on every surface of the room with subject headers that they were going to write comedy bits about, and he had a great writing system for his writers' room. I learned a lot from it and use it to this day. Awesome, Jenny McCarthy. Uh, story that nobody knows about. God, a story that nobody knows about Jenny. Uh, she uh, she flashed me once in the hallway. Uh, she said uh, uh, it was something about uh, whether she was going to do the second season or not. And she ripped open her shirt and said, I didn't get these for nothing. We're going back for season two. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm afraid I can't follow that with any other question. So let's ride off in the sunset here and let's talk about uh, uh, your biggest disappointment professionally. <clears throat> It's the overall idea that I've never done a network hit. Uh, I still, I, I don't know if it matters anymore. I don't even know if kids out there even know the difference between a network and cable show or a, you know, an internet show. It's, there seems to be, everything's blurred now. But when I was coming up, you where you're trying to get to was mass market, big network, NBC, CBS, uh, ABC, or Fox. And although I produced some shows on those channels like Big Deal that wasn't my show, it wasn't that big a hit. I've never been in the club of people who produce the big hit network shows. I've made more money than some of them if you want to you know, measure success that way. But to me, I feel like I haven't achieved really the, the pinnacle, which would be that. Your proudest moment in show business. Well, I was... I guess I was very proud of The Surreal Life. And when it premiered, and it was a network, kind of, the WB. It was kind of a network. And uh, it premiered to success, and I was very proud. And we, we, you know, all of a sudden, People Magazine was doing articles about the show. And I was very, very proud of that show. I really feel like we, it was very difficult to make it happen, and we pulled it off. And, uh, and it went on to be a great, you know, font of, uh, of success for me. Last question. You've seen a lot of artists come up, you've seen a lot of talent come up, and you've seen a lot of executives come up. So it's a two-part question. What advice would you give for the young artist coming up, the young Ryan, the young people that you've seen throughout your time that you've had and you populated your shows, uh, how they can get to the next level, and what advice do you have for the young writer, producer, um creator and what they can do to get to the point where they can get to your level. All right, here, here it is. I hope this works for somebody. 
in the early stages where you're still not known or broken through, you have to be willing to do almost anything to keep the ball moving. That don't be too proud to take a low level entry level job. Don't be too proud to work on a show that you, you know, isn't a big network hit. It's a small thing on, you know, Nat Geo or something and you're just a PA or whatever. Don't be too proud. Take a gig, get inside, get noticed. Uh, Also, you never know where the breakthrough is going to come. Like you may do better trying to get into a film company, or you may do better trying to be a stand-up or a copywriter for an advertising agency. Try everything you can that's in some kind of space where you want to be, because you never know where it's going to break through. Once you break through, then focus your efforts uh, unfailingly on your goal. So uh, you have to kind of be open-minded about where you break through, and once you do, charge down that path as hard as you can. How's that? Fantastic. (laughs) This has been incredible. I hope you had fun. I did. I had a great time. This has been amazing. This is your first podcast? It is. Yeah. All right. I love the Virgin Podcast. I'm a potter now. You you are you have your own you have your own pod. (laughs) Um well I appreciate it. Uh I was really honored to have you here and I know our audience is gonna be incredibly inspired by your story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barry. It's been great. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins. 
the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.